0: Thank you, Hanschen, for leading us in uh, today's service. And uh, welcome to the service for all of us. uh, Please join me in prayer as I begin the sermon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you may strengthen us, that we may be awake and ready to receive your word. For you are the great God who has spoken to us. So may the words that are found on my lips and the meditation in our hearts be right and pleasing before you. Amen. Now, I think a principle that most of us would have intuitively learned from simply growing up in this world would be this. To thrive in life, we need to be in the right inner circles of life. So no matter what social context you find yourselves in, be it family, school, our social media, and our workplaces, success in life is all about being part of that social context, inner circle. Conversely, words fail to describe that sense of rejection, shame, despair, when we are not part of that inner circle, but find ourselves in the outer circle instead. So try all you can, but you are just not part of the inner circle of your family. You have always felt the least loved and favoured among all your siblings. You you don't know why, but what you do know is that that feeling is terrible. So try all you can, but you are just not part of your school's inner circle. You are that boy or that girl that no one wants to have recess with. And in fact, your favourite spot to spend recess would be either the library or the school rooftop garden in the presence of books and plants because those things will be the last things to reject you. You find yourself the last one to be invited for anything, be it for group projects or for fun outings. And the feeling sucks. Try all you can, but nobody likes your Instagram or or TikTok videos. Instead, everyone's liking your classmates' videos. And of course, you are not part of that classmate's inner circle. And finally, try all you can. But no matter how hard or well you perform in the office, you are just bypassed every time it comes to a promotion exercise, simply because you are not part of the company or your boss's inner circle. I think we get the drift. Like how someone once put it, I was once part of the inner circle, Now I'm standing on the outside, looking in. And that's a terrible feeling, isn't it? One way of understanding the letter of 1 Peter is that the recipients of this letter, the Christians that the Apostle Peter was writing to, they were not in the inner circle of their society back then. In fact, in all the different social contexts that they found themselves in, family, workplace, society at large, they were in the outer circle, increasingly rejected, ostracized, and verbally, emotionally, perhaps even physically abused. And they found themselves in the outer circle of their society back then through no fault of their own. It was not as if they had done anything wrong or stupid that earned them their current standing. But they found themselves in the outer circle of society simply because they were Christians simply because they bore the name of Christ. Simply because in bearing that name, they lived differently, they thought differently, they saw things differently, and that difference earned them more and more the disdain of their neighbours and fellow citizens. From once being part of the inner circle in society, they now found themselves relegated to the outer circle, looking in. It is because of this reason that the Apostle Peter writes this letter to them, the dispersed Christians scattered all over Asia Minor, a combination of Jew and Gentile Christians, that even though they found themselves more and more in the outer circle of society, Peter writes to remind them of their true identity, that they were in God's inner circle, that though disdain despised, rejected, and increasingly persecuted by the world around them, they have been chosen by God to be in his inner circle. And they mustn't forget this truth. And as part of God's chosen inner circle, Peter reminds them in this letter that this is how they were to live their lives and conduct themselves, even as they found themselves in the world's outer circle. That's what we have been reading in the previous sections of this letter, isn't it? The Christians that Peter writes to, they have been, 1 Peter 1, 1.3, born into a living hope. That 1 Peter 1, 1.4, they have an inheritance, the full salvation of their very lives, waiting in heaven for them, kept imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And as a result of this, they are commanded to act in the following five ways. And these following five ways are really shown by the um, imperative or what you can call the command verbs that you see in the Greek text, okay? So 1 Peter 1.13, what are these five ways, five actions they are to do? 1 Peter 13, set their hope on the grace that has been revealed and will be fully revealed when Jesus, their Lord, returns. 1 Peter 1.15, be holy, even as the God who called them Is holy. One Peter one seventeen. Conduct themselves in reverent fear. One Peter one twenty-two, love one another earnestly. And one Peter two two long for pure spiritual milk, which is the word of God, the gospel which gave them this new birth in the first place. And that's what we continue to see in today's passage before us. Peter reminding the readers of this letter, whoever they may be, the original Christians back in Peter's day or even us today, reminding all of us that we have been chosen by God to be in His inner circle. So three points are brought up for us. How we come to be chosen in God's inner circle. Point two, what it means to be chosen in God's inner circle And point three, our role and responsibility in being chosen to be in God's inner circle. Okay? So let's start. The first point how we come to be chosen in God's inner circle. The opening sentence says it all. One Peter one four As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Yes, God is the one who has chosen us. 1 Peter 1.1 tells us that we are the chosen exiles of the diaspora waiting for our final home. But those that God has chosen show or display their being chosen in them coming to Jesus Christ. They gravitate towards the Lord Jesus in faith and belief, who in this passage is described as the living stone, the cornerstone. That's what the Lord Jesus himself said, right? In John 6, isn't it? There he connects being chosen by God and coming to him, he connects these two things together. So the next slide. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, Jesus here is described in 1 Peter as a living stone and he's described as living most likely because of the earlier reference to his resurrection. If over there in 1 Peter 1, 1.3, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what brings all of us to be born again into a living hope, then the resurrection is also what enables Jesus to be a living stone and we who come to him to be living stones in return. So that the end picture is probably something like this. Jesus as the living stone. Can you see there? He's a cornerstone. He's the, he's the centerpiece. Yeah, And the rest of the stones, the living stones, are built up around Jesus, who is the cornerstone and the living stone in there. Now we're told a few more things about this living stone and cornerstone. And uh, it's really through the Old Testament passages that are cited for us, and there are a few uh, within the 1 Peter passage itself. So if I can just show it to us. okay? There are basically three passages. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's taken from Isaiah 28, 16. The second passage comes from the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that's taken from Psalm 118, verse 22. And the last one, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Isaiah 8. 14. Yeah. And really, these, these uh, three Old Testament passages, together as they are set out before us in 1 Peter, they show that Jesus, as the living stone or cornerstone, he undergoes a certain pattern. A certain pattern that is best summarized by the following. You can you show it for us? Yeah. Chosen, rejected, and shamed, and honored. So we see in there that Jesus the living stone is chosen by God himself, that Jesus the living stone is precious to the Father, 1 Peter 2.4. Then we see that this living stone, however, is rejected, scorned, and shamed by the world who responds in disbelief to this cornerstone, 1 Peter 2.7. But yet, this very cornerstone will be honoured by God and before God, to become that stone of judgment against those who do not believe. 1 Peter 2.8 Now, as we hear these words described of the living stone, our Lord himself, doesn't that remind us of somebody else? It does. And that is Peter's audience, the readers of the letter themselves. They too undergo the same pattern. right? They too are chosen by God himself to be his elect people. However, they too are rejected, scorned, and shamed by the world and society in which they live in because of their belief in Christ. But yet, they are finally honoured by God before his eyes. And all of this, I think, teaches us a key important point here. And that is, as we come to Christ, as we gravitate towards Him in faith and belief, we as living stones must expect to follow the same path that the chief living stone and cornerstone went through. Chosen, rejected and shamed, but honoured. I'll come back to this point towards the end of my sermon, but I just want to state that point for now. Okay. So to recap for us, That's how we, 1 Peter shows us, that's how we come to be chosen to be in God's inner circle. It is always through Christ, His Son, Jesus, the living stone. And I want to say that that's not something to be lightly skipped over, because truth be told, the biblical and theological language of chosenness or election makes some of us very nervous, because we tend to ask, isn't it, what happens if we are not chosen? Or what happens if the person that, you know, I'm trying to share the gospel with so badly over all these years, what happens if that person is not chosen? Well, we see here that Peter here unashamedly uses the election word and the chosen word. He doesn't shy away from using it in this letter. He tells the Christians that he's writing to, you are chosen by God. Yet at the same time, He and the other apostles always talk about our chosenness together with us coming to Christ in faith and belief. The two go hand in hand together. That's why John Calvin, you could say Presbyterianism's preeminent theologian, John Calvin talked a lot about election. In fact, he had a view of election that some of us find it very difficult to take in. But even then, he always spoke about election by God together with faith in Christ. So he famously said this, Christ is the mirror by which we behold our election. Meaning, you want to know if you are elected or chosen? Then in the same way that if you want to know how you look like, what do you do? You stare into a mirror, right? And you behold your appearance before the mirror. Calvin is saying here that if we want to affirm our election, we ask if we are in Christ. We hold up the mirror of Christ and we ask if you and I have faith and believe in Christ. Now, that's the best assurance that I can give to you as a pastor, as a fellow brother in Christ. You seek assurance of your election. You're being chosen by God. Then ask yourself if you have faith in Christ Jesus ask yourself if you are in Him, if you are coming to Him, the living stone, as living stones. Now that's the best assurance that you and I or anyone can have about one's election because the definite and absolute knowledge of who the chosen is, that's something that belongs to God only. I move on to what it means to be chosen to be in God's inner circle. And here, Peter uses a variety of phrases throughout this passage to describe what it means to be in God's inner circle. And for each of these phrases, many of them refer, or if not allude, to some Old Testament passage. So the first one, living stones built up as a spiritual house. Now, we have already seen this from the earlier point, right? And uh, maybe if at this point, I can show us the picture again, for they say a picture speaks a thousand words, so... Here's the picture, right? There we have it, Jesus Christ as the living stone, the cornerstone occupying the most important and central place in the house. And in fact, it is this stone that serves as the foundation for the entire house. And then we as living stones being put on top of the other, but all this time resting on the cornerstone until the whole house rises and is built up. There is just, I think, a slight nuance to take note of in this metaphor or picture of the stone house that is being presented here. And that is, notice Peter puts it here as verse 5 in this way. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Notice he says, built up as a spiritual house and not built up to become a spiritual house. So meaning it is not so much the case that all these living stones coming together become the spiritual house, but rather it is because they are already living stones and the spiritual house that they come together. Meaning we are never the church because we gather together as individuals and hence become the church. Rather, it is because we are already God's chosen people, the Church, that we gather together as God's spiritual house. It is not our gathering in and of itself that defines our being as the Church, but rather it is because of God, the very One who has defined our being as the Church in choosing us, that we gather together. Next, Peter describes God's chosen people as a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God, 1 Peter 2.5. As a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. That's why he has described the stone house metaphor earlier as a spiritual house, because it is a house in which its very constituents, the living stones that built this house, offer spiritual sacrifices to God. And here I agree with a Bible commentator that Peter's emphasis is not on the priestly role of each believer, but rather it is on the collective priestly identity of God's people. That is, as God's people, as a whole spiritual house, they offer spiritual sacrifices to God and in that way, distinguish and set themselves apart vis-a-vis the world at large. And what would these sacrifices be? Peter doesn't state it here, but a good informed guess would be all the five actions or all the five imperative verbs, the five command verbs that he stated in the previous chapter. Those are our spiritual sacrifices. Setting our hope on the return of Christ, being holy, conducting ourselves with reverent fear, loving one another earnestly, and craving the word of the gospel, all of these would be the sacrifices that we as God's chosen people bring before our God. Only God's chosen people will bring such sacrifices. The rest of the world will not. The third thing that Peter uses to describe God's chosen in his inner circle is that we are his chosen race. Now, Peter chooses a really interesting word here. Race is gnos in Greek. It's an interesting word because gnos, as used back in Peter's day, and I suggest in our day as well, it really was used to refer to a recognizable ethnic group sharing both ancestry and custom. So it is like how we use it today. We refer to Singapore being a multiracial country, meaning... We recognise distinct groups in which those who belong to each group share in certain physical traits and common ancestry and ethnic customs. They are marked out as belonging to a distinct race. But yet the audience that Peter was writing to was most likely a mixed group consisting of Jew and Gentile Christians. And from what we know of Jew and Gentile, They were certainly unrelated in terms of race and ethnicity. Yet Peter refers to them together as God's chosen race. I'm not sure if we see this, but in doing so, Peter radically transforms the usage of the word race. He does so in a manner that you and I would be very cautious in doing in today's world. In this world that we live in, in today's climate, one thing that is quite sensitive, you could say, is discussions on race, isn't it? We are careful in all that we say not to brush over or worse still, to erase the differences or distinctions that are there. So for example, in searching for that deeper commonality that could hold all of a country's citizens together, we are very careful not to brush over or erase the differences that we see among the races and assimilate everyone into one single melting pot. We don't do that. That's why there was a hoo-ha over white teens wearing the Chinese tea pao or chong to their prom nights. There was a hoo-ha over that. That's why Americans were more vocal regarding their objections to um, Kichi Amare Diallo, uh, better known as Rachel Dolizel, And who was she? She was a white lady by birth, but she self-identifies as a transracial black lady. And that threw America, some quarters of America into a hoo-ha, saying that she can't do that. See, racial and ethnic lines run deep within the fabric of our self-identification. But in calling Jew and Gentile Christians God's chosen race, God's chosen genos, Peter was pointing to the true identity of the Christians that he was writing to. This is a true self-identity that transcends those defined by our racial and ethnic lines. This was a true self-identity originated in our common new birth into the new hope, marked out by the common tradition of holiness in our way of life and formed by induction and incorporation into Israel's story as told in the Scriptures. Lastly, God's very own people. That's the last broad description of what it means to be in God's inner circle. We become His very people when once we were not His people. We become His very own prized possession. Here, I think two Old Testament passages really come to the foreground. First one is Exodus 19.4, a passage that we'll be returning to in the, in the later half of this year. Okay. Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the other set of passages comes from the book of Hosea, Hosea 1, 6, 9, 10, and 2:23. In there, these passages will show us that God commanded uh, uh, Hosea to name his children that his wife bore to him, and he was to call his children uh, not God's people and uh, no mercy, yep, And it was only later, subsequently, that God asked Hosea to rename his children to become God's people and uh, people who receive mercy, okay? So by referring or alluding to these two passages, I think Peter was telling his readers that their very self-identity as God's very own people is formed by bringing them in, drawing them in, incorporating them into the story of the Old Testament Scriptures. Such that the Old Testament Scriptures are no longer just Israel's Scriptures, but they are now the Church's Scriptures. For in there, not only is Israel's story told, but guess what? Our story, our new birth, is told in there. So there we have it what it means to be in God's inner circle. We are living stones built up as a spiritual house upon Christ, the cornerstone. We collectively are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God in distinction from the world at large. We are God's chosen race and we are his very own dear and precious people. Isn't it good to hear these words said of us? Especially, if you have always felt like one living life from the outer circle and looking in. That throughout your life, that, that's, that's how you found your place in life. Always in the outer circle, looking in, yearning and longing to be a part of that inner circle. And perhaps that's you. You have tried all your life to seek your place and find your place in the inner circle. Hear God's word for us today. That through faith in Christ, through coming to Him as our living stone, we have been chosen by God to be in His inner circle. That even though we may be ignored, sidestepped, rejected, or even persecuted by the rest of the world, and find ourselves constantly in the outer circles, hear God's word today and be assured that God counts you as His very own his beloved, chosen, and prized possession. Conversely, you and I may be on the other side of the fence that through our hard work and life working itself out for us, it may be that we may have always been in the inner circle of whichever context we find ourselves in, at school um, and now at work, right? Uh, and so much so that, that, you know, this phrase could even be described of us, that whatever our hand touches turns to go. If that's us, then we must be very careful not to allow our pride, our lack of thankfulness to lead us into a situation where we are in all the right inner circles that can be, all except one, which is God's inner circle. Why? Because to be in God's inner circle is not something of our own doing. It is not our own hard work. It is not our intelligence or, you know, excellent people skills or anything like that that can get us into God's inner circle. But instead, it is God's doing, His choosing. But that is shown to us, coming to Christ, the living stone, with all humility, dependence, and faith, isn't it? So that's what we need, right? And, but if success has been always the main tenor of our lives, then we have to be very careful to make sure that that success doesn't lead us to be proud, to be dependent on our own efforts, and to fail to come to Christ in humility, dependence, and faith. It was Spider-Man who said, with great power comes great responsibility. Here, I'd like to tweak that saying to capture the last point. With being chosen comes great responsibility. And that is shown in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. God chose us to be in his inner circle so that we may really Proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. Now I'm sure in thinking how we may proclaim God's excellencies, many of us straight away think of evangelism, proclamation of the gospel or good news of Jesus. I want to say that's true and right. That's certainly a way to proclaim the excellencies of God and his salvation found in Christ. And in places where we can do that freely, Uh, we should continue to proclaim the gospel in a winsome manner. But I really don't think that that was the way that Peter had in mind for his readers in the context that they were in, one where they were in the outer circle of society, increasingly rejected, disdained, and even persecuted. Direct proclamation might not be a life or feasible option for many of them. Instead, How I think they were to proclaim the excellencies of God the Saviour is shown for us further in this passage. Verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Verse 12, keeping their conduct among the Gentiles honourable. Meaning, it was going to be through their conduct, their way of life, their holiness. They were going to have to let their way of life, their actions as they come under all kinds of hostile and outer circle treatments, they were going to have to allow their conduct to do the talking for them. The way that they bear up under unjust and unkind treatment, possibly even unjust suffering, not retaliating, but instead committing themselves to God. All of these actions were how they were going to proclaim the excellencies of God who has called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. Their deeds will be the open doors to lead to their words. There, as stated for us in 1 Peter 3.15, they are giving a reason for the hope that is in them. I want to end by sharing one lesson that God's word has struck upon my heart. And that is, his word reminds us today that whatever that happens to us as God's chosen people, it only happens because it first happened to Christ Jesus. Can we see that? He is the first and foremost one chosen by God, but rejected and shamed by the world to the point of suffering unjustly, but yet honoured by God and before God. And it's only because of Jesus that that we too are chosen by God in Him, even though we are currently rejected and shamed by the world and increasingly persecuted. But yet one day we'll be honoured by God and before God, shown to be His treasured possession, His very own people. And so that reminds me that as we come to Christ in faith and belief, we must really expect to follow the same path that Jesus himself went through. And that is this path, chosen by God, but rejected and shamed by the world, but yet honoured by God. See, in theological terms, the Lord went through a state of humiliation before he entered his state of exaltation. And as his followers as living stones who are built upon no other foundation other than that of the living stone, we likewise have to be ready to partake in the pattern of Christ's humiliation before partaking in his exaltation. But my worry is that the great temptation for us as Christ followers today is that we want to take part in his exaltation without first taking part in his humiliation. We want the glorification without the suffering. In our Christian lives and in the way we see Christianity in society, my concern is that more and more of it is characterized by a sense of triumphalism. So just think about all the different Christian, uh, popular Christian teachings and movements that are are going around our church circles, right? Right? be it faith healing, the prosperity gospel, an overemphasis on the grace of God to the extent that it tends to cancel out the need for repentance or sanctification in our lives. And in some circles, this is called hyper-grace. Or even a teaching like the Seven Mountains Mandate under the wider ambit of dominion theology. Now, this, this teaching claims that Christians have a mandate to occupy the leadership roles in all the seven major institutions of any country or city. The government, education, religion, family, business, arts and entertainment, and media, right? So this, this Seven Mountains mandate says that we are to go out and occupy the leadership roles. Can you see in all of these teachings that are going movements circulating around, my fear is that they ring of triumphalism, a triumphalism that comes from wanting to partake in the exaltation and glorification of Christ our Lord straight away while bypassing the humiliation. And as I read one Peter, it says a very different message. It tells his readers whether the church back then or whether the church today that there is a time for us to share in the exaltation and glory of our Lord. 1 Peter 1.4 says, There is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. But that time is not now. Instead, His message seems to be that now, now is the time to follow in our Lord's footsteps, even as he went through humiliation, rejection and suffering. That's what it means to come as living stones and be built on Christ, the cornerstone, as his church. We will be seen more and more as belonging to the outer circles while we live as sojourners and exiles in this world all this time following in our Lord's footsteps, in bearing with the shame, the rejection, and even the persecution. Until the time, the time will come, where God will fully reveal who we are as his chosen inner circle, his chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. Amen. Please join me in prayer. I'd like to leave us some moments where we can just personally reflect upon what we have heard and how the Lord may be speaking to us. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We thank you and praise you that indeed we have been chosen to be in your inner circle through Christ our Lord, through coming to Him as living stones, coming to Him, the living stone and the cornerstone. We thank you that indeed we are being built up as a spiritual house centered upon Christ. We thank you that we indeed can be together a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to you in distinction from this world. We thank you that you call us your very own chosen race. And we thank you and praise you that you call us your very dear and precious people for your own possession. Lord, we pray that indeed your word may remind us that for many of us who perhaps have always struggled and always desired to be in the inner circle of life and society, remind us Encourage us that indeed, through Christ our Lord, we have been chosen to be in your inner circle. And we pray that also you may strengthen us to to take in the message and to remember that that just as Christ went through the pattern of being chosen by you, but rejected and shamed in this world, that we too, as the church, will have to follow that pattern. And so we pray that you may indeed... Um, Enable us to persevere through whatever trials that we may go through, all this time keeping our eyes to the day where the full salvation will be revealed to us. We thank you and praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.